0: Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your steadfast love shown towards your saints here at Calvary Grace. How you have provided people with skill and talent and servants' hearts to do the work of ministry. I think of all of those who serve on a Sunday, week in, week out the Sunday school teachers, the nursery workers, the greeters, and all of the people behind the scenes who do sound and music and the administrative tasks who are your hands and feet in order to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for the myriad of ways the congregation is able to share their joy in you in the workplace and how you're working in our families, our friends, and the strangers that are met on the bus and the sea train. Lord, we thank you for their boldness in sharing the good news of the gospel. And I praise you for how you are answering prayers, prayers that are shared on CCB that remind me that you are a God who hears our prayers and that we are strengthened by the Holy Spirit in our inner being to love and show patience to those around us with different backgrounds and opinions. Lord, I thank you for all of those who are here today. We're just so encouraged um, by their presence and by their desire to know you more. So help us this morning as we look at your word that you would spur us on to love and good deeds. In your son's name we pray, amen. Amen. We live in a world of black and white, good or bad, this or that, do's and don'ts. And yet God's word challenges us to wrap our heads around the both and. And I want to focus on three both ands that we see in God's word this morning each of them sound somewhat like an oxymoron, like they shouldn't go together. Um, They're two extremes on the pendulum. And our culture tells us, you know, shrink both of those truths down and come to a center. And yet, when we do that, we actually lose the richness and the truth of both of those truths in everything that they show us about the Lord, and we need to understand these rightly and how they relate to each other without distorting each of them. And so we're going to talk about God's character first. We're going to talk about his work of salvation, and then we're going to talk about our response. But the first one that reflects God's character is his transcendence. And his nearness. I have a set of cards. There's 31 of them. And they each have a characteristic of our Lord and his names um, as they are presented in his word. And the last one is El Ilan. El means God, Ilan means elevated, high, and exalted because God is the sovereign ruler over the entire universe. He has absolute supremacy over all things, and there is nothing that can happen without his permission or foreordained plan. Psalm seven says, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praises to the name of the Lord most high. Or Psalm 97, for you, Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Small g. And Psalm 113, the Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord, our God, who dwells on high? God is transcendent in that he is high and lifted up holy, and separate from sin. In Exodus 19, there are warnings given to the people of Israel and limits in order to prepare them for the Lord's arrival on Mount Sinai, lest he break out against them and they perish. He is our creator, and we are the created. He is limitless. And we are limited. Our sin separates us from the pure holiness of the Lord. He cannot stand it in his presence. And hence, Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden. And there were boundaries put on the mountain in Exodus 19 to remind the people that the Lord is different and distinct from us. Isaiah 55 verse 8 says it this way. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's ways are not like our ways. When he speaks, his words accomplish his purpose. He is sovereignly in control over his creation. He provides rain, and it makes bread. How different is that from us where our words can be so much hot air? And even our good intentions do not necessarily have the desired actions or the result that we intend. In Isaiah 6, verse 1, we get this awesome picture of our Lord's holiness as Isaiah announces a seventh and final woe. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and said to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is overcome with the holiness of the Lord, the creator of heaven above and earth below. The seraphim cover their face and feet, in a posture of humility before the Creator. And their threefold repetition of holy, holy, holy points to the absolute moral purity and separateness of God, whose very character gives the standard of moral purity. He is the one who says what is good, what is evil, what is just, and what is perverse. And yet, one chapter later, in Isaiah 7, we get that promise that is fulfilled in Matthew one twenty-three. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He came and lived among us. He who is transcendent, infinitely holy is also at the same time Emmanuel, the one who humbled himself and draws near to the brokenhearted. He is gentle, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And yet that justice is accomplished with a care and compassion for his people. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To go from being so separate from sin that boundaries were put on Mount Sinai so that his wrath would not break out against the Israelites. To bearing our sin, yet never being stained by that sin, to remain separate, morally pure, and holy. It is, at times, mind-bending to wrap our heads around the both-and that shines brightly in God's character that is both infinitely just and holy and at the same time having that care and compassion that draws near to you and to me. Our temptation is to reduce both of these truths, to make them less than, to say that he is not that big and transcendent and holy, but to make him smaller, more palatable. Or conversely, to say that he may have drawn near 2000 years ago, but does he draw near today to you? When we remember the moral purity of the Lord We are spurred on to pursue holiness in our own lives so that we would be like him. We prepare our hearts to come into his presence. We don't treat it casually. He's not a buddy or a lucky charm. We are humbled by the fact that he has condescended to look on us, to care for us, recognizing that he is the creator of all that is seen and unseen. And when we consider how he draws near to us, that he is not far off, distant, nor is he indifferent to your plight, we are comforted to know that he will never leave nor forsake us. And that while he may be, we may be lonely at times, we are never alone, for he is with us. We cannot evade him. He is omnipresent when we look at the world as being filled with either ors, we miss the beauty of the both-and that he has given us. The second both-and is about God's work, his work of salvation, and how he works in us. And this is about, about grace and good works, and Katie gave us a beautiful reminder of his grace. For we are saved by grace alone. And if you have a Bible here today, I'd encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to spend some time there um, in the next few moments. And this is a beautiful chapter that is worthy of memorization, um, if you haven't already done so. And it reminds us that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. But God, and how beautiful are the buts in the Bible. So Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We were dead in our trespasses, not gasping for breath, not limping along, just needing a shove over the finish line. We were dead. And what can a corpse do? Nothing but stink. We don't add to Christ's finished work on the cross to be justified. He said, it is finished. It was not started. It is complete, lacking nothing. Ephesians 2, verse 8, if you just jump down a few verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This grace is a gift of God that we are to receive. And Paul is very clear our justification has nothing to do with our works, so that none of us may boast. He is the one who gives the gift of faith, who changes hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, who gives us ears to hear, eyes to see and perceive. It's a gift to be accepted. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity observed, now we cannot discover our failure to keep God's law except by trying our very hardest and then failing. Unless we really try, whatever we say, there will always be at the back of our minds the idea that if we try harder next time, we shall succeed in being Completely good. Thus, in one sense, the road back to God is a road of moral effort, of trying harder and harder. But in another sense, it is not trying that is ever going to bring us home. All this trying leads up to the vital moment at which you turn to God and say, You must do this. I can't. End quote. Lewis is talking about that deadly trap of legalism and the need to surrender. And this surrender recognizes that there is no point where we are good enough in ourselves. It recognizes that we are a sinner in need of a savior and that it is only by grace that we can be reconciled with God the Father that we need a mediator to stand between us, advocating on our behalf, and doing what we cannot do ourselves. Recognizing this gift, as Katie said, is completely undeserved, so that no one may boast. And yet, God's word also talks about good works. God takes us as we are, warts and all, but he does not leave us where we are. And this requires an understanding of salvation, past, present, and future. As Christians, we are justified before the Father. Past tense, also perfect tense, There is nothing that will change our standing as the redeemed. We are clothed in Christ's righteousness, not our own. And our union with Christ is fixed and unchanging as it is grounded in our legal standing before the Father. But we are also called to obedience. This is our sanctification, present tense. Philippians 2:12 says, "Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure." This working out your salvation is not about our justification. <laughs> and this is where it can get confusing. It refers to the ongoing work of sanctification in the believer's life. Yes, our justification is secure, but our sanctified living fluctuates. We are called to holy living. But we also need to notice that it is God who works in you. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we fight sin. Colossians 1.29, For this I toil, struggling with his energy that he powerfully works within me. It is through the Holy Spirit that we are being sanctified, that we are becoming more holy. But it should be noted that there is a way of dead works, not just good works. Hebrews 9.13 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Now, this refers to the Old Testament temple and the sacrifices there and how those sacrifices were for the forgiveness of sins, yet they could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It only dealt with the externals. Yet verse 14 goes on. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit, by faith in Jesus Christ, that we are not doing dead works, those that are external only, but that we have new hearts by his grace and are doing things unto good works. Back in Ephesians 2, verse 9 continues, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. We must see that while we are justified by faith apart from works, we are justified by faith unto works. End quote. The order here is vitally critical. When you get this mixed up and are working for salvation and always asking when you're going to be good enough, that is works righteousness. Righteousness. And perhaps the more subtle version is doing good works to keep your salvation, to be worthy of salvation. And these distortions make our lives a drudgery of doing what's right, but never doing it from a cheerful heart. Focusing on the externals of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch but not living out a transformed life with a born-again heart. So why are good works important in the life of the believer? Why are we called to be actively speaking into the lives of those around us about the joy that we have in our salvation, the peace that's found in Christ, our hope in the future, when there are so many out there who are anxious about tomorrow. Matthew 16, 18 says, "'And I tell you, you are Peter, "'and on this rock I will build my church, "'and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it.'" Sam Elbury, um, in a recent podcast, points out that many think this means that the devil will not prevail against, in his attack against the church that we're to grit our teeth, hunker down, and persevere. And yet, he points out, these are the gates of hell. What's a gate? A gate is a defensive mechanism. Who's on the offense? All of you. We in the church are to bring the battle, to be on the offense. We are the ones who will prevail because he has already said it will be so. And we prevail in doing good works because we have the promise that they will bear fruit, spiritual fruit in our own lives as we are sanctified, becoming more like him, but also fruit in the lives of those around us as they come to know him as Lord and Savior. Hebrews 13 verse 15 says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Our sharing, the gospel, is not in vain. How can they be saved if they do not hear? How can they hear if we do not speak? Hence, grace and good works go together. It is by grace that we have been saved, transferred from the domain of darkness into marvelous light. And it is by grace that we do good works and not dead works it is by grace that those good works bear fruit in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. The temptation is to become focused on grace and to fall into the trap of antinomialism. And that's just a big fancy way of saying against the law. And that is saying, I'm saved and justified, but I can be a carnal Christian, and I can go out and do anything I want. And it's a distortion, and it's dangerous, because people are deceiving themselves. And on the other hand, we have legalism, which is focused on constantly making sure that you're keeping up instead of being able to see that we stand justified, accepted, redeemed before the Father. Our third both and is about our response and what we are called to do. And that is both striving and resting. Let's look at striving first. And sometimes we forget that these are in the Bible because some of us lean this way really hard. But Romans 15:30, I appeal to you brothers by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. And 1 Corinthians 14:12. So with yourselves since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excellence in building up the church. Hebrews 12:14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And 1 Timothy 4:10, for to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe there is a godly striving that is driven by zeal for the lord to seek the lord to strive in prayer to build up the church through service to be a peacemaker to grow in holiness and to toil and work hard with all we have for the hope that is set before us these are good and right motives that fuel our energies that as we look to Christ, our hearts would burn within us. We are told to strive and our desire is to be obedient. And yet things can so quickly become twisted. The world says, get on the treadmill of life and go. Our pride says, go and keep up with the Joneses. The devil whispers doubts of who would you be if you didn't go to? The world, temptations of sin, and the devil will try to distort our striving to be focused on ourselves, to go, go, go in our own power. And striving in our own power leads to burnout. When I was organizing the church conferences, um, I came back to 1 Peter 4.10 over and over again. And it says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. All of us are to serve, but not in the strength that we bring, but in the strength that God supplies. Every talent, every skill we have is given to us by the Lord. When we are burnt out from striving in our own strength, doing things our own way. We need to stop. We need to stop and rest, leaning on him to restore and refresh us. And that brings us to resting. Isaiah 32:18. My people shall dwell in quiet resting places. Spurgeon elaborates on this. Peace and rest belong not to the unregenerate. They are the peculiar possession of the Lord's people and of them only. The God of peace gives perfect peace to those whose hearts are stayed upon him. At this, we rest in the promise of our faithful God, knowing that his words are full of truth and power, We rest in the doctrines of his word, which are consolation itself. We rest in the covenant of his grace, which is a haven of delight. More highly favored are we than David in Adullam or Jonah beneath his gourd. For none can invade or destroy our shelter. The person of Jesus is the quiet resting place of his people. And when we draw near to him in the breaking of bread, in the hearing of the word, the searching of scriptures, prayer or praise, we find any form of approach to him to be the return of peace to our spirits. End quote. So I want to talk about those three things that Spurgeon pointed out. Where do we find our rest? First the promises of a faithful God, knowing that his words are full of truth and power. Those promises are known. And for some, there's an aspect of the already but not yet. But even while some of them are not yet, they are so guaranteed it's as if they're already here. Hebrews six thirteen to 20 talks about the covenant promises being sure Because when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steady anchor of the soul. God's promises come true because it is God who makes them happen. He is able to bring them to pass. And we talked about that earlier with his transcendence, his sovereignty, that his ways are higher than our ways because his words come true. And here are some promises that he makes to believers in the New Testament. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Or Revelation 1:7. behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Some of the promises are straightforward and clear, but others are more cloudy and obscure. But regardless, we can rest knowing that what he has promised will come to pass. Second, we rest in his doctrines. Now, doctrine can get a bad rap. It sounds boring and dull. And yet, when we are suffering, when we are being disciplined, when we feel like we are being pruned down to a stump and wondering what's left, we can take comfort in knowing that God is doing exactly what he said because he loves his children. Having a robust understanding of the doctrines of suffering, persecution, sin, judgment, salvation, sanctification, providence, and sovereignty give us comfort in knowing that we're not alone in those moments, that we have a comforter in those moments that there is a reason for it, and it's for our good. And each of those could be a talk in themselves and more, um, but that's for another time and place. Third, we rest in the covenant, covenant of grace and the person of Jesus Christ is our quiet, resting place. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. When we meditate on the person and work of Jesus Christ, it reminds us that he has done it all. The work is finished and completed. He is sitting down at the right hand of the Father, and we can rest in him. Our future is secure earlier i mentioned three tenses of salvation past present and here's future the third is our glorification promised in romans 8:29 for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is expanded in Colossians 1, 4, where he says, And Christ, who is your life, appears. Then you also will appear with him in glory. This is so guaranteed. It is spoken of in the past tense, even though it's in the future when we draw near to him, when we approach him in prayer, in worship, or study, it brings peace to our spirits, and we can rest in Christ's work on the cross, not in our own self-sufficiency or independence. And by resting in God's promises, doctrines, and the covenant of grace, we are able to be fueled with zeal strive in this life, lived out, poured out for Christ. And when we are weary, we can come back to him. We can gaze upon his character and be refreshed and renewed. And so as we reflect on these three both ands, I want you to think about how it changes your perspective. God's character of holiness and compassion shows that it is possible to be to both hate evil and to draw near to the brokenhearted. God's grace towards us shows us that as Christians, we are all the same, saved by grace that no one may boast. Yet it should lead every one of us to good works. Our position and identity in Christ leads to the practice of extending grace to those around us. We do not always strive, and we do not always rest, but they should both be present in the Christian life. It's going to look different from person to person. He has given us different energy levels and tendencies, and our own Christian witness can shine forth when we rest in the sufficiency of our Lord and Savior, when we trust in His sovereignty. We all tend to focus one way or another. So I want you, as you talk in your tables, to think about which way do you gravitate towards. And if, in the discussions, you can gain a better understanding and appreciation of the other without diminishing or distorting one view. Let's close in prayer, and then you're free to have discussion time and application, um, and then you'll be free to go. So Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time together to look at your word, to be reminded of the truths that are there for us. Lord, I pray that as we leave here today, that you would refresh the weary, that you would Give us hearts that burn with zeal for you, Lord, that we would go forth singing you praise in your name. Amen.